Would you take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 64? We're looking at a Psalm of David. There are not many Psalms of David that do not speak of his enemies and speak of his trials and speak of his difficulties. And as we look at this uh, this evening, we don't know what the exact background is, but David, much like in some of the previous Psalms, is, is facing enemies, and specifically, they're sinning against him or attacking him by way of their words or their mouth. And one thing that I think is important to look at that might help us understand this psalm and how it can be of use and comfort from, for us is most often David's troubles, David's enemies, are those that would identify themselves as part of the covenant community. So whether it was Absalom or it was Saul or many of those that followed Saul, those that were directly going after David would be those that say, hey, we follow the same God as you follow. Now, the descriptions of them tell us they were not truly regenerate men, but actually they were wicked. They were outside of the faith. But nonetheless, there are those that are part of the covenant community. They outwardly, they profess, but inwardly, they are wolves. This is something that we have to face as well as Christians. We already know that the world is going to hate those that follow Christ. Christ tells us that the world will hate those that follow him. What, where it's harder to take is when it comes from those that profess the same faith that you profess. But nonetheless, that's what we see will happen. Paul warns of this in Acts chapter 20. I'll just read it for you in verse 28. He says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, that is those, those that look like you, that profess the same things as you, Paul says there will come wolves. He says they will arise speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. What happened when Paul opposed those? They came in the name of Christ. They went after Paul. They attacked him. And here, what does he say? When I leave, when my protection and my watchful eye is gone, there's going to be trouble coming your way from within. What will happen to those that are watching him and say, that's a wolf? Well, the one that points out the wolf becomes the target of the wolf. Paul is about ready to die. His last will and testament is the letter to his son in the ministry, Timothy. In 2 Timothy, he warns of this as well. 
He says this, he says, you, in verse three, chapter 3, of verse 10, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's a reality that we face even within the church, is that wolves will arise from within the midst, and they come after you, and you're not expecting it, you're not aware of it, one that you called friend, one that you called brother, comes after you. And so as we read this Psalm of David where he is facing that very thing, let us remember this is coming from within. And so let us hear the word of the Lord. How does God inform us how to handle these situations ourselves? And how does God show us how he will handle it? So as I read the text, think of it this way. How does God teach us to, uh, for ourselves to, to deal with these situations? And then how does the text also inform us how God himself will deal with the situation? I want you to bear in mind those two questions as I read God's word. Beginning in verse 1. Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from dread of the enemy. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of evildoers, who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows, shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear. They hold fast to their evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly, thinking, who can see them? They search out injustice, saying, We have accomplished a diligent search, for the inward mind and heart of a man are deep. But God shoots his arrow at them. They are wounded suddenly. They are brought to ruin with their own tongues turned against them. All who see them will wag their heads. Then all mankind fears. They tell what God has brought about and ponder what he has done. Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let all the upright in heart exult. This is the word of God. And I want you to notice, just very basic, in verses 1 through 6, we see how God instructs us to handle this. You take it to him in prayer. And then how does God himself handle it? God himself will bring vengeance upon the wicked. And you see that in the final verses in verses 7 through 10. So the basic thing that we can grab from this is a prayer to be protected from the enemy, not to be paralyzed by the enemy. We take it to the Lord, and then we are reminded how the Lord himself will handle the wicked. That's our encouragement. And it begins... With a petition, notice what he says, hear my prayer. 
This is a command, it's an imperative. And it's not that he's commanding something of God, but it is to show the force of it. And there are times that we experience something in life where we, we may be talking to others and it seems as if no one hears, but we know this and are comforted by this fact that our Heavenly Father hears all of our prayers. And Spurgeon said something to the effect of, of this, is, is that those prayers that are never heard on earth are most greatly heard in heaven. What an encouragement to us is that when we take our prayers to the Lord, He hears them. But notice what He says, in my complaint. In my complaint. He's taking a complaint to the Lord. And that's like counterintuitive of, of what our prayer life should be like a complaint. We think of it in a negative sense. But here, what do we see is that taking that complaint to the Lord is actually consecrated. By God's word, to take it to him. We want to be careful here. What is a complaint? Well, think of it in this way, in contrasting the enemy, as we read of the enemy. The enemy takes their issue, uses their tongue to take down the righteous. David uses his tongue to go to the Lord. What does it mean to take a complaint to the Lord. Well, very simply, it just means musing upon the situation you're in, thinking about the situation you're in, and, and taking that to your Heavenly Father. Just kind of give you an idea of how that word is used in Job chapter 10, verse 1. I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. If you think of anyone having a cause for complaint or saying words like, I loathe my life, it was Job, whose, whose losses are, are incalculable. What is the whole point that we see here is that we are to take our concerns to the Lord. Let me ask you this. Is there any concern too great for the Lord? Is there any concern that troubles your heart that's too little to take to the Lord? Is there anything too trivial that burdens you that you cannot take to the Lord? No, we can take all things to the Lord, whether it's great or whether it's small. In fact, our habit ought to be not waiting until things get so big that we're desperately crying out to the Lord, though we're comforted that we can do that. There's nothing too small or too great that we cannot take to the Lord. And he goes to the Lord and gives him and spills out his heart what is going on. And notice the, the prayer. He says, preserve my life from dread of the enemy. Now dread is more than than fear. It's to tremble. But specifically fear, as you think of the difference between fear and dread, is fear helps us to make judgment for preservation. Fear can be a very good thing in many ways. But dread and the word that here is speaking of being paralyzed. 
not being able to move, whereas fear might be able to enable you to do that. You see it this way in Exodus chapter 15, verse 16, just to, just to illustrate this. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone. So David's asking the Lord that, that these that are coming after him, it will not paralyze him. It will not make him still a stone. That he wouldn't be paralyzed by their attack on them. So he asks to preserve my life from this, from being, being paralyzed by them. Being rendered useless. That's his prayer. But he goes on and he says, hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of evildoers. He's asking for protection from their schemes, from their plotting. And David views prayer as a sufficient means of protection here, doesn't he? It's amazing. You see the effort that they put forth in coming after David in the description, the secret plots. You can just almost picture these shady characters hiding behind closed doors, uh, conspiring to take David down, and how are they going to come after him? And so he goes to the Lord in prayer. But this description of them and the description of their schemes and wickedness actually shows that the Lord will come after them. Calvin says this, For the more cruel and unjust the conduct of our enemies may be, we have proportionately the better ground to believe that God will interpose on our behalf. Think about what Calvin says. David's describing wicked men that are, that are going to an all-out effort And so the greater the force of their wickedness that is coming after David, what Calvin's observation is simply this, the greater their wickedness that they exert, the more sure we can be that God will vindicate his people. What a comforting thought, because when you think they're coming at you so hard and the wickedness is so great, there's a greater comfort knowing God will vindicate you. David describes them. Specifically, what it is, what the context is, we're, we're not sure, but it, it's their words. He describes their words. He gives a description of how they act in verses 3 through 4. He says, Who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows. And so the imagery of a sword is obviously death, of an arrow is obviously death. That's the whole point of having a sword, is to kill. That is the point of an arrow, is to kill. So the the tongue is described in instruments of destruction, in instruments of death. And notice how they're used. They're used in an ambush. They're used suddenly, that is with a swiftness. And so there's this deadliness to the tongue, to an unexpected victim, which means this, as it's described in this way, is there's no chance for defense. And so very likely, their tongue is being used to somehow frame David by accusations and to catch him off guard. And so that's how they're using their tongues against him, is to catch him off guard 
Notice what they do and notice the contrast. Shooting from ambush, this is verse 4, at the blameless. Shooting at him suddenly and without fear. And so there's a, there's a contrast there between the wicked and the blameless. And I just want you to notice something here. David's the target, but what does he say here? Is He says not only is he the target, but those that are with him are also the target. Those that stand with the king, the blameless, are also going to be facing the swords and the arrows of the evil. That's an amazing statement. Those that are with the king will also be a target. That's why he designates the blameless. David's cause is not singular, but rather involves those that are with him. I want to point out something here about this group that's described here. And this may sound uh, strange, but these that are described here, these wicked, evil, conspiring men, are incredibly wise. They're incredibly skillful. And they're exercising their craft to execute it. You have to know the enemy. And you have to know that the enemy is skillful with their craft and can cause maximum damage. And we don't think of it confuse that with a biblical wisdom wisdom of living in a covenant community, their covenant with Satan is one of wisdom in his realm of using destruction and going after the king. You see, their nature is described in verses 5 through 6, and it can just be summed up as this, is, and all of this can be cowardly. Verse 5, they hold fast to their evil purpose. They Talk of laying snares secretly, thinking who can see them. So they believe that by throwing out accusations that, or by their method of tearing down David with the tongue, they think it's, it's hidden. And so as they conspire of this, it's, no one sees it. Why is it that they say that this, as they hold fast to their evil purpose, they talk of laying snares secretly, thinking who can see them? Because here's the reality, is is the one that throws out the things with the tongue, this is is something I think that we've experienced in life, is the one that throws it out is usually never held responsible for it. Think of it like this as a forest fire, and we know that the Scripture compares the tongue to a fire. But in a forest fire, the origin of the fire, where the spark came from, and who it was that lit the spark, is very difficult to determine. It takes specialists to figure that out. But what's not hard to see is the damage left in the wake, is it? That's why that they think that they can throw out their evil purposes against David. Oh, no one sees what I'm doing. I can throw this out here. I can throw this out there. 
and they think that they're getting away with it. In verse 6, it says they search out injustice, saying we have accomplished a diligent search for the inward mind and heart of a man are deep. And so, notice the language, their, their purpose here, their, the searching out, this idea that they have accomplished this, and the inwardness of this. This means that these, this is speaking of the depth of their wickedness, but also that they are masters of their craft. They're good at what they do. They put effort into it. It would be like practicing an instrument you have to practice an instrument to get proficient at the instrument. You have to practice at being an accuser to be a good accuser. Now, just a very practical application of this is that oftentimes, if you think of this in terms of whatever it was, the accusations, just if they were rumors, rumors can be launched fairly easily without fear. And why? Because the one who starts the rumor is often shielded and protected. Let me give you an example. Someone comes to you and said, I, I'm not going to tell you where I heard this from, but this is what's going around about you. Who was protected? the person that said the rumor. And the innocent party, if in fact they're innocent, because not always, sometimes the rumor's true, right? But now the person is now brought forth with something, an accusation about them, and the person that has brought forth the accusations is protected and we think sometimes when we do this, I'm not going to tell you where this came from. We're doing someone a favor. When actually, when we hear it, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? This is basic Christianity 101. And if we can't get that down, we're, we're, we're to call them out on that. If you have this issue with your brother or your sister, you need to go and talk to them about it. Rather, we're more concerned to protect the source of the rumor than by confronting it. And the, sometimes, not always again, sometimes it's a true one, but the innocent party is harmed. But whether, the, whether it's true or not, what are we supposed to do? You need to handle this. Because what happens is exactly what we see here so often is there is the plotting to take someone down. Or maybe that's not even their intentions. It's maybe just they don't want to take a person down so much, but they inevitably do it. If you find yourself ever facing that, where you, you, the, the rumors at your expense or the accusation is at your expense or the, the gossip is at, at your expense, what has the Lord shown us that we are to do? We're to take it to Him in prayer. We're to take it to Him in prayer. Yes, we confront things and all, 
all of those things. But the first place where we must begin is to take it to the Lord. That's where our comfort lies. Now look what happens, and this will be what happens, is we see in verses 7 through 10, protection through judgment that comes on the enemy. So if you look at the first few verses as David praying to protect me from the enemy, we see in these other verses here is that protection comes through judgment. So protection's coming through judgment. And you see the judgment in verse 7 through 8, and it's just so sharp. Where you see in the previous verses the wickedness of those that are coming after David with the rumors and all of these accusations against David. And then very sharply verse 7 begins, But, but God. He says, God shoots his arrow at them. They are wounded suddenly. And I, I want you to notice the, the tense of this is it's stated as if it has already happened. That's how the grammar states it. David is saying, whether this has happened when he wrote this or not, it, he states it as this Judgment has happened on them. God has already judged them. He states it as an accomplished fact. David states his confidence in his God to protect his people through judgment. This is the confidence we must have as well, by the way. We must have the same confidence. Whether it's our common enemy, the devil, judgment has taken place. Or whether it's in this life where we, we face trials of people, we can be reminded of this, Romans twelve nineteen. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You know, it's amazing that Paul couples this vengeance that God will bring with the statement of his wrath. We've got no clue about anger. Ours is an uncontrolled anger that responds to something. God doesn't respond to things because God's immutable. God's wrath is the expression of His justice. And if God is just, His wrath is perfect execution of His justice. It's an amazing comfort. It's an immutable, unchangeable, eternal, all-powerful, just God. God's, God's not just simply reacting to things as if God had to realize the exercise of His attributes based upon His creation. God's perfect in His judgment, and God will judge. Now, you notice that it says this, they are wounded suddenly. God shoots his arrow at them, they are wounded suddenly. It's, it's amazing because they 
were shooting in verse 4 at him suddenly and without fear, thinking they could get away with this. But when the reality of judgment comes, what do we see? It's swift and it's definitive. Judgment is swift and it is definitive judgment. And look what the result of that is in verse 8. They are brought to ruin with their own tongues turned against them. All who see them will wag their heads. Their, their, their plot falls back upon themselves. You, you see this, I've seen this previously in other portions of the psalm. In Psalm 57, verse 6, it says, They, they set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they themselves have fallen into it. And so they fall into their own trap. They fall into it as they use their tongues for this evil. It comes back upon them. It ruins them. Their own sin poisons their soul. Sin has an effect on us. You look at the wicked. Look what it does to them. Look what sin does to the wicked. The wicked have a purpose in life to go after the Lord's anointed. They scheme for it. They plot for it. They plan for it. That's their purpose. But what do we see of their purpose? It fails. Not only does their purpose fail, but their very purpose comes back upon their own head. They have done this in safety of secrecy. They were hidden. Yet what we see is God sees it all and brings it back upon them swiftly. Now there is a recognition that this type of sin of opposing Christ people, Christ church, we see inwardly destroys them while they're consumed with lust and hate. It comes back upon them. And all who see it flee. All who witness the judgment depart from them, wag their heads at them. Which is a Hebraic term that's hard to get to the exact definition of what it means. But it's not good. All those around them that see them. And look at the result of the judgment. It says, then, then verse 9, Then all mankind fears. They tell what God has brought about and ponder what He has done. So, God brings judgment. It's visible. It's tangible. And then everyone that witnesses that now does what? They think about it. They ponder it. And they recognize that God Himself has brought this judgment. Judgment is, is meant to bring us to a wondering and a pondering of God and His nature. Isaiah 26, 9 says, For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. They see the downfall of the wicked. It causes man to ponder what happened here. 
How often have we seen in the church pastors fall from grace? And everyone flees from them. Everyone wags their head. How do we respond when we see that? When their own sin comes back upon them, do we stop to ponder the judgment that came upon them as a warning for ourselves? Because it's very easy to see the sins of the fallen person. It's very easy to see judgment somehow come and befall a person and them experience some form of justice in this life. Do we ponder God's providence in what took place? Because when we see their sins coming back upon their own head, it should actually lead us to seeing God in the details. It should lead us back to recognize the hidden hand of God's providence that's taking place in exposing the wicked. And then I want you to notice David ends with an exhortation, a celebration of the judgment. In verse 10, he says, Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let all the upright in heart exult. So the first thing we see is really an individualistic celebration. David is victorious, so let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. But it's really not Singular. Notice what it is. Let all the upright in heart exult. In Psalm 61, verse 8, David singularly said, So will I ever praise to your name as I perform my vows day after day. David is saying that he will celebrate God. He will worship God. He will tell of what God has done. But in Psalm 64, in verse 10, it's instruction to all of us that are the righteous to celebrate what God has done. So I want to make this point. David the king is targeted. But because of those that are associated with the king, they likewise are targeted. And when God brings judgment upon the wicked, those that are associated with the king rejoice. Because God has brought victory to the king. The king's victory is the people's victory. Not only does the Lord protect his anointed one, but he protects the people of his anointed one. Just as we see Jesus saying in John chapter 10, that he's the great shepherd that will protect his people. So what do we see here? How do we deal with these issues? Well, first, we, we take it to the Lord. That's how we're to handle it. 
We take our complaint to the Lord. And then second, we see how the Lord himself handles it. The Lord will bring judgment. We may not always experience it in this life right now, but you can rest assured judgment is coming. I want to make a couple of points of application. We are confronted once again with the reality of just how sinful the tongue can be, aren't we? Over and over in Scripture, it's, it's brought up, and you see it in the New Testament. You look at um, Paul's exhortations to the church, and so often it has to do with the tongue. And so we see it is, is deadly, it destroys, it harms, and all of those things. So may this be an encouragement, an exhortation for us, a, maybe even a rebuke to us. Let us always check ourselves in this and recognize how we ought to shut those things down. May we never, may we never protect the one that has the wicked tongue. May we always protect the one who is assaulted by the tongue. But also, wisdom and discernment must come into play. Not always is a tongue that comes after someone always a wicked tongue. What do I mean by that? Not every tongue is evil, even when it says things that we don't want to hear. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Sometimes we need a tongue that wounds us, don't we? That doesn't mean it's a wicked, evil person. Maybe it just means that we needed to be rebuked. But we recognize there's a, there's a right way and a wrong way in which we use the tongue. The tongue that comes to you and says, hey, here's my issue. Praise God for that. But the one that says their issue that they have with you and they share that with everyone but you, that's what's being addressed here. We have to recognize the difference. The other thing is this, is that when we see the fall of a person with their sins coming back on them, it is to lead us to consider the very nature of God's justice. It's to lead us to praise our great king and remind us that our sins can fall back upon our head as well. And so, in other words, a very simple way to, to look at this is all providences should go back to God. Uh, what do I mean by that? As we go through life and we consider the things that we go through, the valleys and the mountaintop of experiences, we know we have a sovereign God. And the outworking of His sovereignty is His providence that is our life that we're experiencing right now. How has the Lord used these experiences in my life, in the life of others, to teach us, to sanctify us, to grow us? So in other words, all of God's providence leads us back to ponder our amazing, sovereign God. Even the fall of the wicked should remind us that God is a just God. You think upon history. You see so often in 
world struggles, a wicked ruler is taken out by who? A wicked ruler. That should remind us that God is sovereign. God is working and His providence is taking place. And we should reflect upon it. God is doing what is good. And then final is a note of encouragement for us. Uh, you, you may not experience in this life, in some situations, that your case will ever be heard. You might experience in this life, the, um, you, you might be on the wrong side of someone's sword and their deadly arrows. And you may never get to have your case presented and, and your voice heard. And that might just be a reality. And that can be tough to handle. But what did we see in the text? Those that are with the king are vindicated. Those that are with the king are counted as blameless. Those that are with the king will rejoice in the Lord. Because there's a final judgment coming. Think of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then the end comes when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. He must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The Lord is bringing vengeance. The Lord is bringing vindication of His people. The Lord has defeated the final enemy, death. And so whether we experience it here or now, what we have to be comforted with is the fact that it's coming in a way that we cannot even imagine. And what, is we, what did we see in the text? It will be swift, and it will be definitive. And so if you're with the king, know that you stand with a victorious king that has conquered all things. Our great king, Jesus, is the king that has conquered all. Heavenly Father,